time for the reading of God's Word, as, uh, is our tradition. We're going to be in Luke chapter 22, verses 13 through 20. Luke chapter 22, verses 13 through 20. And then I'm going to jump over to verse 39 and uh, read 39 through 46. Luke 22. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and His apostles reclined at the table, and He said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, He gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you, For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way after the supper, he took the cup saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. Jesus, now down to verse 39. Jesus went out, as usual, to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down, and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him, and being in anguish, He prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping, he asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, as we uh, take time here this morning in your precious word, we find our hearts so filled with gratitude, gratitude for who you are, what you are doing in our midst, gratitude for your continued work here, and Lord, we are so grateful that we can come on this communion Sunday, celebrate this meal together, and worship you, and so Lord, we pray as we take these moments in looking at your word in the Gospel of Luke about this Last Supper. We pray that you will indeed be at work in our hearts and in our minds this morning. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, Recently, I uh, read of a guy who called for an Uber. Now, uh, he got in the car, and uh, as they were going along, he wanted to speak to the driver, so he leaned forward and tapped him on the shoulder. The driver screamed, jumped up in the air, yanked the wheel over. The car ended up uh, mounting the curve, demolished a land post, and then came to a stop inches from a shop window. The uh, startled passenger said, I didn't mean to frighten you. I just wanted to ask you something. The Uber driver said, well, it's not your fault, sir. It's my first day as an Uber driver. I've been driving a hearse for the past 25 years. 
You know, when we uh, get used to something over many years, it can be startling to experience severe changes, as this Uber driver found out. And in this new year, there are likely to be changes, changes that we need to be prepared for, changes in our own individual lives, and maybe changes here at Parkway. You know, there's uh, another story that's told of a pastor who was uh, calling on a member who had been missing church services for several weeks. The pastor asked him, what keeps you away, brother? To this, the, uh, this particular member replied, you know, I'd rather be in bed on Sunday morning thinking about the church than in the church thinking about my bed. And then he added, at least my mind is in the right place. Is that how uh, maybe you feel sometimes? Is this how uh, we sometimes feel about church, or maybe all the time? What do we do when there seems to be nothing that truly motivates us about church? Let me suggest that often this comes from a loss of a sense of vision and mission of who we are and whom we belong to, whom we're following, following. We lose sight of the real Jesus. We make Jesus into a comfortable guy who lives next door to us, who's just a slob like one of us. Now, the, uh, as we've been going through the Gospel of Luke, I, th- I hope that you've seen clearly on display that the historical Jesus is really a countercultural radical in almost every way. You know, this is uh, the end of my series in the uh, Gospel of Luke, Uh, and uh, although I do reserve the right to uh, revisit a text or two in the Gospel, but uh, as we continue to seek the Lord's renewal and revitalization in our midst and in our own hearts, I hope you see that uh, there is really nothing boring about Jesus, and so there really shouldn't be much that is boring about us. And there's just nothing that is boring about, it's not, you know, this whole pious religious stuff that has nothing to do with your regular life. Rather, it's, uh, Jesus is a dynamic, countercultural, extraordinary extremist, an extremist of transforming love. I hope you've been seeing that. And as we continue to seek the revitalization of the Holy Spirit in our midst, as we continue to pursue the new vision that God is planting in our hearts as His people here at Parkway, a vision of a healthy, vibrant, active church that is actively preparing church planters and church revitalization ministers, sending them out, sending out groups to begin new congregations, a church that is actively evangelizing, actively reaching out, actively inviting our neighbors, actively praying for and supporting an ever-increasing number of missionaries to be a part of Christ's mission to seek and save the lost. I pray that this vision quickens your heart, that in this new year we spend more time on our knees with our Savior, that we spend more time loving others, showing faithfulness and kindness to others, more time speaking of Jesus with those who don't know Him and don't have a relationship 
with the living God. And so uh, this passage that I'd like to focus on in this Communion Sunday is really, I think, vital as we begin this new year. And what a, there's no better way to begin than with communion and the meaning of it. See, the hour comes for Jesus to recline at the table and share this final meal with his disciples. The communion table is a wonderful place to once again catch the vision and mission of God has for us. Jesus here uh, tells the disciples how he has eagerly desired to celebrate this meal before he suffers. This is a Semitic way, by the way, of saying and expressing great emotion. Then Luke uh, presents us with the Last Supper. And it's only in the Gospel of Luke, by the way, that there are two cups mentioned. We're only going to have one cup this morning, but uh, two cups are mentioned in verses 17 and 20. Let me uh, give you some greater background to understand what's going on here. See, this is the Jewish Passover that was celebrated every year. The Jewish Passover meal occurs in four courses, which include four cups. The first cup that, that Luke includes is actually the second cup of Passover, the cup of salvation, as Luke indicates in verse 17. The second cup that Luke includes here in verse 20 is actually indicating the third cup of Passover, the cup of redemption, as Jesus indicates that this is now linked and completed in, the in His sacrifice on the cross. He says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. This cup of redemption is also uh, linked, by the way, to the bread, which is usually eaten with the third part of the meal, along with the lamb and the bitter herbs. See, Jesus is going to change the symbolism of the bread, linking it to his death. He takes it, gives thanks, breaks it, passes it around the table, and he says, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And it's at this point that the Passover meal transforms into the fuller fulfilled meaning in Jesus, linked to his death. So let me, uh, let me get to the heart of all this, and this is where your outline in the, the middle of your bulletin comes into play, so if you like to keep notes, let me give you the point one on your outline. The purpose of the Passover meal for the Jewish people is to remember who they are, and that they are to be a united community. See, first is uh, to remember who and whose they are. Their identity is tied to the meal. It solidifies in their mind who they are. That their identity is molded in the saving and redeeming act of God during the exodus from slavery in Egypt. And they are a united community in the Passover. One people of God, not multiple. They were the, those were the two elements. Identity and salvation and redemption from Egypt and unity in the community of God's people. Point uh, two on your outline is this. And now in the new covenant, our identities are intricately linked together in the Lord's Supper. 
See, we receive this redemption displayed in the communion table as we accept the elements together by faith, don't we? We remember the shedding of Christ's blood for us. We remember His broken body for us. Jesus says that that the cup is the new covenant in my blood. So we are new covenant people. We are receivers of the promise of forgiveness of sins and the enabling power of the Holy Spirit, which is expressed in the law written on our hearts. Now, uh, unfortunately, many come to churches around the world to celebrate communion as a mere empty religion, a religion that is mere form without reality. They enact this meal as just an empty ritual. They mentally acknowledge its meaning, but they never truly internalize the redemptive loving reality behind our motions. Jesus doesn't come and enact the Last Supper so that a new religious form can develop. Let me make sure you hear this loud and clear. Jesus doesn't come to create a new religiosity, a new form without reality. See, as you come to the communion table, you're doing something quite extraordinary. You are declaring to God, to yourselves, and to all those around you that you no longer belong to yourself. That your identity now is inexorably tied to Jesus, and especially to Jesus' substitutionary death on a cross in your place. To share in this meal is to affirm an intimate oneness between you and Jesus. Sometimes people get the idea that we're remembering a tragedy. Jesus wants them and us to understand that he is not a victim. This is not a memorial of a tragedy. The Passover lamb is preparing himself, offering himself. See, nothing is catching him by surprise. He chooses to obediently follow the path of suffering and death that have been laid out for him from the foundation of the world. And we as a chosen people, a royal priesthood, intimately identified with the one we follow, we too are called to pick up our cross and to follow him in obedience, no matter what the road has before us. Why? Why should we do that? And how? See, the answer to that question is found in the redemptive relationship we have with Jesus. So let me, uh, before I get into all that, let me cover a few reasons that we don't do communion. We don't do it to earn something from a distant, uncaring God. We don't do it to manipulate God so that He might show us His favor. We don't do it because it's simply pattern and tradition and makes us feel good for a little while. We don't do it because God somehow likes to see us suffer. See, because it is His Supper. We reflect on his death at Calvary and his return for us in glory. The events from eternity past to eternity future are bound together in this celebration of the redemptive love and sacrifice of our Lord. See, eternity touches time in the moment of the disciples' celebration of the Lord's Supper. 
And because of that, we too are linked to that event as we celebrate the Lord's Supper here today. You and I are the beneficiaries of fellowship as we come together and we proclaim the Lord's death until He comes again. This communion table reminds us to live as if Christ died yesterday, rose today, and returned tomorrow, as I often say. It should and must give us an urgency to live our lives as ambassadors of Christ Jesus, which we'll be looking at more next week. See, this meal reminds us who we are and whose we are. What we couldn't do for ourselves, God did for us through His Son. Giving His life in order that many might gain life is the act of God's love. And that's the message of the Lord's Supper. See, when we come to the table, we're saying that this church is not ours. It's Christ's. And however He chooses to work in our midst, we are to be yielded to His desires. Our life is not ours, it's Christ's. Whatever change that Christ might bring in our lives, might bring in our church, this is His church. And we are His. Now, uh, point three on your outline is this. The, the table is an act that is designed to sustain our unity by drawing us each closer around the reality of the death and resurrection of Jesus. See, the one who made us His body is the one to whom we draw close to. At the table are brought together sacrifice and promise. See, Christ's presence and His enabling love are all with us and within us through the Holy Spirit. We are called to respond to Christ's sacrifice and that sacrifice made, and what that sacrifice made possible. Now, uh, let's go back to our text this morning. Following the section about Judas's betrayal and Peter's denial and the disciples' foolish view of leadership, we come to uh, verse 39 here, where Jesus prays to the Father. And in his prayer, we see both Jesus' agony and his desire to follow God's will, even if it means his life. The disciples really fail to understand the depth of Jesus' suffering and agony. They fail to support him and to encourage him. They fall asleep in their failure. So he's already instructed them to pray so that they don't fall into, into, into temptation, but they fail. And then he turns and models for them what he has called them to do. As the time approaches for his suffering, he lays his emotional and spiritual pain before the Father. He comes into intimate communion with God the Father with all His temptations. And He does that as a model for us. The command of Jesus to pray, by the way, here in the, uh, in the Greek is in the present imperative form, which means an ongoing commitment to pray. Not just for a single moment. And this uh, really gets at the heart of prayer. And this is, by the way, point four on your outline. The heart of prayer is communication to build a truly loving relationship with the living God. See, the intensity of the emotion here is, very, is quite palatable in the Greek. 
sweat drops like blood, and the term for agony and anguish is an extremely strong one. And it's at this point that Jesus, in in intimate prayer with his Father, draws close to him and finds strength and refreshment for the final leg of of the journey to the cross. The disciples, on the other hand, model uh, the opposite. They've not drawn close to the Father in prayer. They have failed. Why? See, they've really misunderstood the nature of faith, which is at its core relational. The core of why we're placed together in a church is relational, to be in intimate relationship together with the personal, loving, triune God. In redemptive love, He calls us into loving relationship with Him and with each other. And when we trust Him for our salvation, we don't enter into a new religion, a new set of rules and religiosity, forms without really any reality. But we enter into a loving relationship. We enter into an assured love as the all-powerful Son holds us secure and loving response to His Father's will, while the Father wraps His all-powerful fingers around the Son's hand in loving response to the Son's will. Then the Holy Spirit, the third divine person of the Trinity, wraps Himself around us as a guarantee of our inheritance. See, we are held in this indestructible grip of the loving triune God. And it's in that intimate, loving relationship that we can let go of fears. Our past, present, and future doesn't rest on our performance, but on the Father's love, the Son's obedient, loving sacrifice on the cross, and the Holy Spirit's ability to lovingly carry out that redemptive, relational work in us and among us. See, this love between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit holds us secure in ways that no modern human love ever could. All other loves may fail, but not the love of God at work in your life. Henry Nouwen put it uh, this way, as long as we keep running around anxiously trying to affirm ourselves or be affirmed by others, we remain blind to the one who has loved us first. But when the one who has loved us first, the triune, personal, relational God, takes hold of us, we are completely secure, and that security fundamentally changes all our other relationships. So uh, point five on your outline is this. We no longer love others to become loved, but because we are loved. I hope you see that there's a massive difference between the two. We can love people as ends rather than as means to the end of our own feelings, of, our, of worth and inadequacy. See, we love out of fullness, out of the fullness we receive being in Christ and His remarkable, unfailing, and unending love for us. We no longer have to go to desperate measures if others don't make us feel adequate enough. We make no more insecure attempts to determine our our love worthiness. See, when we uh, go deep to the one who loved us first, we we can forever settle the question, am I loved? In a way that frees us 
frees us up to truly love others. We can live lives that reflect the vision that God has given us here at Parkway of loving people to real life in Jesus because we understand, and what we understand is point six here, that real life is a redemptive life, a life lived in giving ourselves away because we have been found and saved by Jesus. See, when, uh, when Christians in Thessalonica were exploiting one another, Paul prayed this way, May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else. When Augustine was forced to face his own corruptions and sins, he asked God to increase his love with these words. He to whom is given the love of God, he indeed ought to pray insistently that this gift may be increased in him. In the 5th century, Thomas Kempis prayed, Expand my heart with love, that I may feel its transforming power and may even be dissolved in its holy fire. Let me be possessed by thy love and ravished from myself. Let me love thee more than myself. Let me love myself only for your sake. And in thee, love all others. That is an essential prayer that is based in the communion table. You know, uh, some years back, I was uh, uh, in the early part of my ministry, I was counseling a man who, who at that point fundamentally changed the way I pray. He was a man who was always gloomy and sad. He rarely uh, looked people in the eye and he rarely ever smiled. After some time, he... uh, would meet with me, and he confided to me that he had been struggling with porn addiction since his youth, which had resulted in a deep and desperate loneliness and severe difficulty in handling relationships. He tried everything his previous pastor advised. He tried accountability partners, computer blocks, all the stuff that is... uh, promoted as a way of dealing with this. Nothing seemed to work. After uh, much prayer and thought and research, I then told him that it's time you completely give up on handling this addiction on your own. It's time you try something radical and drastic. It's time to admit that you can't do anything about it. We can't kill the sin in our hearts, but Jesus can. We can't conquer the temptation, but Jesus can. So uh, we met together and I said, let's together ask Jesus to cause you to increase and abound in love. Let's ask him to draw near to you, to change your heart in such a way that that you find him irresistible. And that you find your sins completely repulsive. Let's ask Him to completely transform your affections. Let's ask Him to help you stop seeing people as something to be used, but rather that they are created in the image of Jesus. We then spent time praying that prayer together. 
and we committed to praying that prayer for each other until we met again the following week. A week later, I couldn't believe that this was the same man I saw the previous week. I finally met the man who was trapped in an outer shell of death, as Paul calls it. He told me that the entire week he found himself so filled with Christ's presence and love that there wasn't any room for the corruption that so controlled his life. So how about you today? Have you prayed that prayer for others? Have you prayed it for yourselves? Will you pray that prayer in this new year for me? And Will you pray that prayer for your brothers and sisters in Christ sitting around you today? Will you pray that prayer for those you meet in your uh, daily life, co-workers, neighbors, family, friends, or just the people you meet at the grocery store? If we wish to uh, continue to see Christ's work of revival here at Parkway, then we must together commit to these kinds of prayers for one another. Prayers that we might all together have the kind of passionate love for Christ that is so on display here at the communion table. Let's pray together. Gracious God, you are so uh, amazingly, amazingly loving to us. To us who fall so very short and do not deserve one iota of your love, your care, your forgiveness. And Lord, we pray that uh, as we come to the communion table here today, that we will come desiring that greater passion for you, for ourselves, for our brothers and sisters sitting around us, and for those whom you are calling to join us in the changes that you are making in our hearts and in our minds and in our community. Lord, we desire to see your transforming, transformational love at work in our, lo- in our own hearts in our own lives, in our own families, most especially in our community here at Parkway, that you might indeed make us into the people you desire us to be. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And as we prepare our hearts for the communion table here,